When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on the show, we continue to pitch HBO our incredible spin-off ideas because we have so many, <laughs> so many. <laughs> Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And we are back to talk about some more obscure stuff. <laughs> every day our bread and butter baby <laughs> our bread and butter and i'm excited because we're actually returning to a topic that we have already discussed once mm -hmm. we talked about the supporting cast of dune and sort of these side characters who deserve their own moment in the sun and we did so with the incredible comic book girl 19 herself danica 19 right it was so much fun to have her on as a guest <laughs> check it out <laughs> yeah yeah definitely go listen to that episode she was an incredible guest and it was an absolute treat to geek out with her about <laughs> yeah. some of our favorite minor slash side characters in the dune universe right but we had to respect her time because she was a guest normally leo and i let these recordings go on for hours six seven hours easy <laughs> So we kept the characters in that script fairly limited and fairly focused. Right. Today, there's no rules, Leo. <laughs> it's eight hours. Let's go. <laughs> Gamjabar unshackled, baby. That's from day one, there were never shackles. <laughs> we need shackles. In fact, I'm adding that to my, my shopping list. <laughs> we need shackles. Yeah, we, we desperately need them. Yeah. <laughs> so on today's episode, the goal is to continue that conversation that we started with Danica and to fill out the rest of our roster of supporting characters in the Dune universe that deserve their 15 minutes of fame and maybe their own spinoff show, HBO, hit us up. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Today's episode is going to contain spoilers. Yes. This is your warning. We are really considering a cast of characters from all of Frank's books. Right. You know, off the top of my head, I can think of characters and some plot points we're going to inevitably mention from every single book. Yeah. And guys, this is a podcast. It's going to be up. It's going to be there waiting <laughs> for you when you've read all six books. They're wonderful. I encourage you, get through them. They're amazing stuff. And then we're here waiting for you with open arms. Yeah. We highly recommend them if we haven't said that before. <laughs> have Have you heard of Dune? It's really great. <laughs> have you heard of Dune? One last bit of housekeeping that we have to take care of. Yes. You may or may not have heard us say this before, but we'd love to hear from you. We get emails and DMs from our wonderful listeners all the time. 
We try to respond to as many of them as we can. And it's so great to hear your comments, your questions, your stories. Somebody sent us bat facts the other day because we joked about bat facts. Love it. Love it all. <laughs> so we encourage you to reach out to us at gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. That's the best way to get in touch with us. And just to say hello. Absolutely. And I think that is the housekeeping out of the way. So let's, oh, let's recap what we talked about. On the last episode, I talked about the robo-gola chauffeur, Clareby. Best <laughs> boy, Clareby. He's wonderful. Yes. I also, since that episode, have written out like a six-page <laughs> show prompt for anyway it doesn't matter fan fiction is the word you're looking for leo fan oh no smutty claire b fan fiction let's not lie to our listeners i was trying to live with integrity and, and self-respect and it's gone didn't mean to accidentally write tune fan fiction abu you focused on stilgar right you talked about stilgar yes i talked about our fremen Navy boy. That's weird. Let me not say that again. <laughs> Ill. It's weird. Ew. Yes, the Fremen name Stilgar, played by Javier Bardem in the upcoming film. And in that conversation, I made the pitch to you and to Danica and hopefully to the HBO exec that listens to this show. Right. That Stilgar deserves his own spinoff prequel series. Oh, yeah. Because I would love to see that on screen. The Stilgar come up is a story worth telling. Oh, so good. And then Danica, 19, never to be outdone, <laughs> just blew us away. So great. With her take on Hasmir Fenring, in her words, the bisexual murder bunny who makes being a cuck look cool. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. If we don't get a Fenring spinoff series based entirely off of her pitch. Riots. We're living in the wrong timeline. <laughs> we're in the wrong timeline. Yeah, that was such a great episode. And those were three really fun characters to talk about. And we want to do a similar thing today. Leo, you and I both picked one character that we want to deep dive into, have a conversation about, and ultimately make our pitch to HBO for why these characters deserve their own spinoff series. Indeed. And in the spirit of Gamjabar, can't just be that simple. Let's, briefly, which is to say, probably will be half the episode. <laughs> we have our main selection characters. We each have our picks and you got to stay tuned to find out who those are. <laughs> Let's take a moment to explore some just incredible characters who are memorable and incredible, and they probably also deserve their own spinoff series. Hell yeah. They just didn't make our, like, number one picks. Exactly. These are the honorable mentions that didn't ultimately make the cut. But we're going to talk about them anyway, because it's Kamjabar, baby. Because <laughs> it's Kamjabar. We have to. Contractually obligated. <laughs> Also, if you think of a character that we didn't say here, please let us know. Yeah. Because again, the nature of these characters, oftentimes I had to really think about it and then I would remember someone and just the flood of memories of just incredible little moments. It's so much fun. So yes, if you think of someone that we haven't listed here, let us know because I'd love to geek out with you. For sure. Okay. Up first on our honorable mentions list. Yes. Is Nayla. Hell yeah. Nayla, the fish speaker bodyguard. <laughs> Deathly loyal to Leto 2, assigned to, frankly, Leto 2's enemy at the start of that book, Siona. <laughs> right. <laughs> For a moment, I was listening to fish speaker bodyguard. 
in the context of someone who hasn't read God Emperor of Dune. <laughs> what does that sentence it's like mean? Just an insane combination of words. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know each of those words separately, but... Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> no, she's an absolute badass. Uh, love her. And her job on Leto 2's orders in this book is to keep watch on Siona, keep tabs on Siona. Right. While reporting back to the God Emperor himself, who she, once again, is deathly loyal to because she's a fish speaker. Now, she's famously a huge fan of rock climbing, which mm. is great. Loves it. Uh, in the script, I have no fewer than three emojis <laughs> describing <laughs> uh, her love of rock climbing. And although we do get to see a little bit of her life at Siona's side throughout God Emperor, yeah, I, I think there's an opportunity here to see her training, kind of like what is it? like to be a fish speaker under Leto 2's rule. Yeah. Her assignment to Siona, like how did she handle that news leading up to literally her firing the laser gun that takes down the bridge is how I'll say that. Imagine seeing that from her perspective. There's so much there. I also definitely get like Brienne of Tarth vibes a bit. Yes, you know? that's exactly the vibes I get. I'm really glad you brought that up. <laughs> Perfect, yeah. Uh, great minds, man. Great minds. <laughs> yeah. I think Nayla is awesome and definitely deserves a spot on this honorable mention list. For sure. Okay. Next up on honorable mentions is a woman named Rebecca. Rebecca. Now, Rebecca comes into play in Dune Chapter House. Yeah. When the hidden Jews become quite a serious plot point in the in the story of the Dune universe. Hidden Jews. Shocking to <laughs> find that in dune yeah man yeah no i i agree like that at that we haven't really talked about chapter house too much on this podcast right but it was certainly a little weird when the hidden jews started playing a major role in the story considering like we've talked about religion in the dune universe we've done entire podcasts dedicated to that theme and to that idea check out our oc bible episode Frank really went out of his way to not include like regular old-fashioned religions in the dune universe in the first couple of books, he went out of his way to change the names and some of the teachings and beliefs of some of these Earth religions. And the idea is over the tens of thousands of years that humanity expanded across the galaxy, religion evolved and changed. And right. really, Islam or Christianity or Hinduism are not what they used to be back on planet Earth. They have transformed into new religions. Right. So it was a bit weird that like by the time you get to book six... It's it's just the Jewish faith. It's just, it's just Judaism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's also one of those things where my first thought is, really, there was no reason to mention them in the first five books. And then, you know, the cynic in me goes, uh, he didn't really think of it until later. But the in-world explanation could be, guys, they're hiding. Of course they're not coming. It's in the name. It's in the name. Hidden Jews. It's, they're hidden. And they're really, really good at it. That having been said, Rebecca is an insanely interesting character. Yeah. Who I would love, love, love to see more of. Yeah. In brief, Rebecca is a wild reverend mother. Amazing. Living on Gamu, which a reminder, Gamu used to be Giddy Prime. Right. Thousands of years ago. The Harkonnen homeworld. And she's living among this community of hidden Jews. Yeah. And in the plotline, when she meets Lucilla, she has already awakened her other memory she kind of has this ability to tap into her genetic memories along her female line right 
And as a precaution, Lucilla kind of does a time machine backup of over 7 million Reverend Mothers into Rebecca's head. It's like the Lampetus Horde, right? 7.6 million awakened (laughs) memories. Just being downloaded into your brain. God, what is the data transfer speed on that? Is that, are we dealing with like USB 2.0? You know, did they have to sit there forehead to forehead for like four and a half hours? Or <laughs> it was pretty quick, right? Right. I don't know. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a power that we, again, haven't really talked about yet on this podcast, but just the fact that Reverend Mothers had this ability to transfer other memory to each other, to transfer the memories that they've saved from previous Reverend Mothers amongst one another right. is insane. On top of the fact that Lucilla here is so desperate that she trusts a wild reverend mother. Yeah. Someone who's not really in the fold of the system, is not really working under Odraid and the school, and is kind of out on her own among these Jews. That is a move of desperation on Lucilla's part. So Rebecca starts to suddenly play a key role here in the fight against the honored matres. Yeah, no kidding. And... Even through their interactions and the way that Lucilla interacts with the rabbi really shows us that Rebecca's life and the life of a Jew in the the year of the honored matres must just be like fraught with tension, you know, secrecy, but also, again, a lot of those qualities preserved of kind of the ancient Terra practices of family tradition and philosophizing that almost to me read as like Zen Sunni. You know, it was very the way that they kind of toyed with ideas and went back and forth. It was cool. It was really it was interesting combining that all of that with the sci fi elements of Dune as few and far between as they are. This really would have the potential to be unlike any other show out there. Yeah. I was thinking about how to end the series, you know, how to end Rebecca's show on HBO. Picture this. Final scene, Rebecca meets Lucilla in their scene, and the final shot before credits roll is them touching foreheads with all of the implications that that carries. Wow. Ugh. Wow. Ugh. So good. Maybe. I don't know. That's In my opinion, that's good. <laughs> that's good and also economical because it does take four hours to download that information, and like nobody's <laughs> right. trying to watch a four-hour episode of two women touching foreheads. There's a holiday special that's just the following scene, and it's just four hours of uncut footage of the rabbi being a little bit bored. And he's like, yes, <laughs> just like, is this going to take? Oh, you're still going. OK. Yeah. And, and, you know, occasionally every 34 minutes or so, somebody's like eyebrow twitches. Rabbi, did you need any water? <laughs> no, I'm OK. We're just waiting. Uh, sign me up for those four hours. Folks. I'll make time. <laughs> I'll make time. Next up on our honorable mentions list is Hui Nori. Yeah. First of all, I love that name. It just rolls off the tongue. But Hui Nori makes an appearance in God Emperor of Dune. And she's frankly an incredible character. She is genetically engineered by the Ixians to be attractive to the God Emperor, to be attractive to Leto, right? To be attractive not just in a sexual sense, but intellectually. Right. Challenge him and emotionally connect with him. She is sort of pre-built and engineered by the Ixians after years of studying Leto II to create 
an opening, right? Right. He is a all-powerful god emperor with prescience into the past, present, and future. The Ixians are finding an angle here. And the angle here is go for the human side of this giant worm. Go for his heart. Go for his emotions. Yeah. And they create Hui Nori, someone that Leito 2 can fall in love with. Yeah, no kidding. And beyond the insane nature of that task, you know, create a human who the god emperor himself will fall in love with. Her life is insane. Yeah. Her childhood is a blank space. And part of this comes with one of our main characters and our entry points into the world is omniscient except for things that are hidden by other prescient beings or by no rooms. Right. And she was trained, taught, and raised all within one of the very first no rooms, like very early tech. Incredible stuff. Yeah. I think about in Westworld. Did you ever watch Westworld? Yes. The, I watched the first season. Okay. In the first season, they have the guy who's going through the iterations. He's like in that little habitat. Right. That's kind of what I picture here, where she has her everything she needs, but it's all within this kind of self-contained room, you know, going through her various lessons and her... Yeah. I don't know. I'm so curious because it's just, by definition, it's a story that wasn't told to us and would be fascinating to see how people would work with that puzzle of how do we make someone enticing to this sexless 4,000 pound worm boy. Right. <laughs> how do you do it? Yeah. I mean, it, it's so fascinating. Her childhood could be a source of conflict in this hypothetical show, right? Like, does she resent the fact that she was raised and engineered for a specific purpose and didn't get a normal childhood? Or does she buy into it? Is she like, oh, yeah, I, I have been chosen to woo the god emperor. I have been chosen for greatness and I need to achieve this. Maybe that's part of her arc as a character. Again, that's a part of the character's history that is a complete blank slate. Right. I think that's fertile ground for some incredible storytelling and characterization for we. Right. On top of that, I really get, especially throughout God Emperor, I really get like Beauty and the Beast vibes from this. Right. Yeah. And it would be interesting to maybe use a Hui Nori show, a spinoff show, as a sort of retelling or even commentary on a classic like Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Beauty and the Beast in Dune with a Dune spin. <laughs> the Beast isn't a sexy cat or what is he? He's like a water bison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like a... The Beast isn't a sexy water bison. <laughs> He's a sexy 400-pound worm, baby. Yeah. He's, he wriggles. He rolls. <laughs> flops around. Sexy. Jiggles. Joggles. <laughs> <Jiggles>. Yeah. <laughs> I also, such begins Abu and I slowly pitching every movie that exists, but with a dune spin. <laughs> Fast and Furious. Ornithopter edition. Yeah. It's about family. <laughs> <laughs> it's about family. It's about the siege. <laughs> well, moving on, our next honorable mention is our best attempt to avoid doing a small episode within this episode, because we're talking about the potentially main character. Yeah. <laughs> Duncan motherfucking Idaho. Duncan? Just the fact that he's already basically the main character is a sign that he's clearly dope. I don't know how much value there would be in like telling the story of the Duncan that we meet in God Emperor or 
the Duncan that we like hate, you know, because he's just there with Paul all the time. Right. Or even the first Duncan who, although he is incredible, dies <laughs> very early on. Very quickly. Yeah. Very quickly. You know, there's, I think there's room for like a Duncan prequel series, but hear me out. Right. There are a thousand Duncan Idaho Golas during Leto II's reign, right? Right. We know this. It's thousands of years. Right. And he kept killing him. <laughs> he just kept, kept running out. He was like, oh, God, I, I got to go to the Toilaxu store again and get another Duncan. <laughs> so using the encyclopedia for reference, because the encyclopedia has a, frankly, baffling amount of information about Duncan Idaho, I've pulled a couple of examples from the encyclopedia of Duncan Golas that we didn't see, that we missed from the end of Children of Dune to the beginning of God Emperor of Dune. And these examples are, I'll let them speak for themselves, but I think they're pretty great. Yeah, I would agree. So the first Duncan example we have from the encyclopedia is Duncan, is this number or the year he was born? That's a great question. I think it's the year he was born. That makes sense, because yeah, 11,000. That's, that's a lot of Duncans <laughs> to get through. So the first example we have from the encyclopedia is the Duncan that was born in the year 11,099. This version of Duncan ended up falling in love with a Bene Gesserit of secret rank, mm. and that title is usually given to Bene Gesserit who are deep undercover. Right. And this Duncan ends up becoming a leader of a militant group of Sardaukar. <laughs> okay. And together with the Sardaukar and the undercover Benny Gesserit, they sought to assassinate Leto too. Yeah. Classic Duncan move. Typical. They all eventually end up trying to do that. Yeah. This Duncan got really, really close. He brought an Ixian stone burner. <laughs> Nearly worked on the dad. And a force of Sardaukar. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking insurance. Oh my God. That's a good package. <laughs> so he brought this Ixian stone burner and Sardaukar to face off against Leto's forces. A big battle plays out the Fremen versus the Sardaukar. But in the end, as close as they get to victory, in the end, Leto II himself <laughs> rolls onto the battlefield, yeah. jiggles onto the <laughs> battlefield, and tips the battle in his favor. He kills the final Sardaukar remaining on the battlefield, and this version of the Duncan Gola is murdered by Leto. <laughs> A great attempt, got real close, a stone burner and an undercover Benny Gesserit were involved. Oh my god. But in the end, this Duncan also failed. Also, the like, getting the stone burner from the Ixians without Leto II noticing, you know, the number of no-ships and having to have the guild steersmen with you all the time and yeah. cleaning up their mess. There's so many elements of that story that are so rich. Right. So much maneuvering happening here. Yeah. Not to mention a love story with an undercover Benny Gesserit. Ugh. Oh, it's great. This is ripe for storytelling. And then it ends with a floppy worm boy just <laughs> massacring the forces. It's so good. And really, I think, would make a fantastic, like, hour-long entry into this kind of anthology miniseries, right? Yeah. Just a one-off. <laughs> Doesn't end well for the protagonist, Duncan, who gets squished by a worm. But, you know... It's got its ups and downs. It's good. Yeah. I would love an anthology series about the many lives of Duncan Idaho, right? Like each episode is maybe following a different Duncan. Yeah. And over the arc of the season, maybe each Duncan is leaving like little breadcrumb trails to help the next Duncan 
defeat Leto. Right. And, you know, the idea over the course of the season is we eventually lead up to God Emperor of Dune and the final Duncan, and he finally has all the tools he needs to achieve victory against Leto too. Like, that would be cool to create this connective tissue between all the Duncan's lives. Like, they're helping each other, leaving clues and hints and details for the next Duncan to pick up on and use to try and defeat Leto. That'd be so good. That would be such a cool, like, eight-part series that ends right where God Emperor of Dune begins. So good. And also, you know, hear me out, episode starts the same way every time of, like, Duncan waking up. Yeah, coming out of a vat. Yeah. Uh, uh. Very, like, Neo (laughs) in the Matrix. (laughs) Do do we want to show an axolotl tank? Uh... (laughs) Maybe this is day two out of the vat, and he's in bed. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) To avoid... Having to show play Laxu Tech. Um, also, using Denny Villeneuve's casting, who wouldn't want to see Jason Momoa for like eight more episodes? This is great. Right. Works for everyone. Yeah. The undeniably funniest episode of that anthology series would be the next Duncan Gola that we're going to talk about. This next Duncan Gola is nearly unbelievable, but it's so funny. Clumsy Duncan. <laughs> uh, born in 12,280. <laughs> This may have actually been the first Duncan clone, because, again, to be a Gola, the person you're recreating has to have died. So it's possible that this was one of the first Duncans that was created while the previous Duncan was still alive. But nevertheless, there was an issue in the axolotl tank, which flawed his balance and coordination. Yikes. (laughs) So this dude is just, like, lacking the coordination of the Duncan that we've known and loved right the one who climbs rock walls beautifully (laughs) he arrives in the palace basically spends a bunch of time just getting bullied (laughs) the fish speakers and leto too are like he's so clumsy look at him so in addition to the normal trauma of like i'm how many duncans in why am i being brought back right all the stuff that we see in god emperor of dune plus just constantly people laughing because you're clumsy tragic sad 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 but then then, oh i almost feel bad i'm like i feel bad for clumsy duncan but he's so clumsy he decides finally enough is enough i'm angry i'm gonna put an end to this right he comes to the classic duncan decision of i've got to kill leto too he goes to a a, an arms room Uh uh-huh grabs a bomb oh and then moves to use it to kill leto but is too clumsy to throw it. Whoops. <laughs> Drops it and blows himself up. <laughs> Didn't see that banana peel in my way. It's like, <laughs> God. The idea of clumsy Duncan getting angry and then just being too clumsy to execute. Oh, man. Oh. Now, another very short-lived Duncan, since we're talking about short-lived Duncans in the history of Duncan Idaho, <laughs> right. is the one that was born in 12,122. And this was a unique Duncan. Yeah. Because it was the only Duncan Idaho that the Tleilaxu delivered as a woman. Yeah. A female Duncan Idaho Gola. Yeah. And the Tleilaxu here hoped that just the raw <laughs> sexual power of Duncan Idaho yeah. in his male form would translate to his female form and do what ultimately Hui Nori ends up doing in God Emperor of Dune and woo Leto to the God Emperor. Right. That doesn't happen. (laughs) No. (laughs) Because upon laying eyes on a female Duncan Idaho, Leto 2 immediately crushes her. 
Roll credits. <laughs> I imagine this like sultry walk up, the really sensuous, you know, nice music is playing. And then Leto 2 just looks up and like rages in the episode. Moneo! <laughs> Moneo's like, oh man, ah, heck, damn it. I also do like the idea of an eight episode miniseries where one of the episodes is like 13 minutes long. <laughs> Something about that would be humorous to me. Or one of the episodes is just a montage of really short lived Duncans. <laughs> right. Just kind of like a quick cut flash cut montage of just a bunch of Duncans being born and dying <laughs> very quickly under mysterious and silly circumstances. I mean, again, if we have clumsy Duncan and we've got like failed attempt to sexually woo Duncan, there are so many possibilities. Right. <laughs> we could go. Those Toilaxu are really shooting shots in the dark. So to find out the other ones would have been fun. What if there was just like a super tall Duncan? <laughs> <laughs> They're like, what if Duncan was 14 feet tall? <laughs> Maybe that'll be enough. <laughs> All right, let's round out this incredibly long honorable mentions section. Yes. This last one is quick, though, we promise, because yeah. we've already done an entire episode on him. Hey. Gurney Hallett. Yeah. So rather than repeat ourselves and talk all about Gurney Hallett again, as we could for another hour, <laughs> just a friendly reminder, go check out that episode. It's a spoiler-free look at Gurney Halleck's life and legacy, whose story deserves to be told. A hundred percent. Via a spinoff TV show. So we're going to talk about the two characters that we've picked as the top of the pile characters who deserve their moment in the sun. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. So hang out. As soon as we're back, we're getting into those two characters that we think HBO would be a fool to ignore. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All righty. Welcome back. It is time, Leo. Yes. We've been talking about it and teasing it all episode long. Yes. For our picks. Yes. <laughs> so I picked uh -huh. Princess Irulan as the supporting character that I think deserves her own show. So good. Yes. And look, I understand how it could be argued that Irulan is not a supporting character and she's actually part of the main cast. <laughs> so maybe she doesn't fall under this umbrella. Yeah. Yeah, okay. But look. Right. Sure, she is present through the first <laughs> three novels. Right. But we barely learn anything about her. Right. And all she really does in every single one of those novels is play a supporting role, a literal supporting character. Yeah. And to really sort of hit this point home, in the encyclopedia, which is notorious for really going ham on lore and probably going into way too much detail, which we love. <laughs> yeah. The entry for Ekaz, a planet that is mentioned exactly once in the Dune saga, is literally larger than Irulan's entry. So I rest my case. 
I think her entry is about as long as the entry on spiced coffee. <laughs> like <laughs> Exactly. They did her dirty with the encyclopedia. They did her dirty. Yeah. Which is why I think she deserves the show. Yeah. She deserves the spotlight. So I rest my case. Irulan is a supporting character, and she falls under the umbrella of today's episode. Also, we had a great listener suggestion from Brian Schomber. Right. He emailed us and wanted us to do an episode about Irulan. And because there isn't a whole lot to talk about with her, we figured this would be a great opportunity on today's episode to talk about her. Right. Okay. So who is Irulan? A quick refresher. She is the eldest daughter of the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV. Mm-hmm. She was born in 10,165 AG. She's a trained Benny Jesuit, <laughs> but not a good one. Oh. <laughs> a quote from the encyclopedia, from her very small entry in the encyclopedia, says, quote, suffering from peer pressures and her own intellectual inadequacies, she never excelled in either her courtly or Benny Jesuit studies, end quote. <laughs> Such a clinical way of saying she just wasn't wasn't top of the class. Exactly. Yeah, she wasn't exactly the top 1% at the Benny Gesserit school. She was not graduating with honors. Which, like, to be fair, like, the top 1% in Dune is really fucking crazy. <laughs> like, right. I don't know. I think we've said this in episodes in the past, but it's hard to judge Irulan because we're comparing her to the most powerful and intelligent people in the goddamn galaxy. Exactly. She's probably still, you know, way up there. It's just sad to hear it put in such sad phrases. Right. Absolutely brutal terms here from the encyclopedia. <laughs> yeah. A little harsh. <laughs> a little bit harsh. But unfortunately, yeah. inadequacy seems to kind of be the theme of poor Irlan's life. Well. <laughs> As we know, by the time of Dune Messiah, she goes on to become the wife of the man that takes her father's throne, Paul Muad'Dib. That's a tough look. She then is never actually able to share his bed or gain his affection. Even tougher look. Right. And later on, after her death, she is remembered in history as St. Irulan the Virgin, which is just the toughest look yet. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> Brutal. That's so mean. That's like a middle school, totally unnecessarily mean nickname. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's just her legacy. Oh. Sometimes referred to as the Virgin Queen as well. It's it's brutal. At least that one has Queen in it. The Queen's a little bit redeeming. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And actually, I'm going to touch on it a little bit later on. There's actually some positive connotations to these titles as well. So it's not all bad for Irulan. It's going to get better. Right. Now, having covered her inadequacies and the tough looks that she goes through during Dune and Dune Messiah, it's important to remember that Irulan did contribute to the universe and played a significant enough role to be included in its history. Yeah. A little background on her early years. From an early age, Irulan had this intense passion for writing. She kept a diary and a journal through her childhood and actually even continued that practice through her schooling at the Bene Gesserit Academy. Right. And as we know, she ends up chronicling much of Paul's life and sayings in a number of historical books and records that we as the reader read at the start of many chapters. Many of those little excerpts at the start of the chapters in Dune and Dune Messiah and the other books are written by Irulan. Yeah, I love them too. Those are great. Yeah. Poetic, beautiful, poignant. 
Exactly. Amazing. So she's a great writer, and it's been a passion of hers since childhood. She also, in Dune Messiah, serves on Paul's council. Yeah. So she's not doing nothing. She's helping run the Empire in her way. And there are moments where Paul values her judgment. Early on in Dune Messiah, there's a scene where the council is discussing whether they should move against the Carino house, against Irulan's father. And she brings up the fact that that might be a bad look for the Empire because some folks in the Empire are now looking back on Emperor Shaddam's rule with nostalgia. Right. And as Disney knows, you don't fuck with nostalgia. You just <laughs> capitalize off of it. You just wring it dry for money yep. constantly. <laughs> so Irulan here is genuinely giving good advice to Paul as emperor. So she plays a role on the council as well. Again, you got to give credit where credit is due. She's not completely inept. Right. After Paul walks into the desert by the end of Dune Messiah and into Children of Dune, she continues to serve a similar role for Alia in helping rule the empires, assisting her, again, being that supporting character and doing what needs to be done on her council as an advisor. Right. And in addition to that, and probably more importantly than that, she helps raise Paul's twins. Yeah. Who now are orphans. And she genuinely grows to love both of them. They're not exactly her own children, but they are children she loves nonetheless. And I love their scenes together. There were some genuinely touching little moments of Leto too, in all of his <laughs> being like a million years old as a child, is like, ah, she's sweet. <laughs> I like her. Yeah. She's cool. And you can imagine how that affection would continue once Leto too takes the throne. Right. And early on in his reign... She's actually quite instrumental in founding an imperial library. Hell yeah. Which is so cool. Yeah, that's great. And she basically, after the events of Children of Dune and once Leto II starts his reign over the galaxy, she spends the rest of her life writing and editing, again, a number of those historical works that we end up reading across the many chapters in the Dune books. And she catalogs a time period in history that comes to be called the Age of Enlightenment. If you're interested in Irulan's writings and some of the specific books that she wrote and edited, as usual, the encyclopedia goes into incredible depth here that <laughs> we're not going to get into now because that would take another hour and a half. <laughs> right. But if you're interested in some more details about her most famous works, definitely check that section out in the encyclopedia. Is that a separate section from her main section? It's like a subsection in Irulan's section. Okay. So to wrap up Irulan's life, she eventually, by the end of her life, returns to Wallach 9 and dies in relative obscurity, kind of quietly just passes away. Mm. And for a hundred years, nobody really thinks about her. Until, around a century after her death, many of her works are rediscovered and this new wave of idealizing her begins. Idealizing the Virgin Queen. Right. And what's interesting is part of this newfound reverence toward her is about the fact that she remained a virgin her entire life she married paul never had children with him after paul's death she just continued to serve on alia's council and take care of paul's children and never remarried for the rest of her life and she almost became this symbol of resistance against the political and societal expectations in the very patriarchal empire of the time yeah that's cool so it's really interesting that she became this female icon 
And this cult eventually forms around her, this cult of St. Irulan the Virgin. Mm. And again, cults are generally not great. <laughs> right. <laughs> if I, if I, <laughs> it's a bold, bold opinion, Abu. <laughs> right. Exactly. Controversial of me to say that, I suppose. But this cult <laughs> ends up sort of championing this idea that builds up around Irulan's legacy, this idea that Irulan is a symbol of resistance against traditional roles for women in the empire, in Leto II's empire. And the cult ultimately celebrates ideas of scholarship and independence and the virtues of joy and compassion for women. Oh, hell yeah. And roles for women outside of the norm in political society or just in the society of the empire, where in many cases, just as in our modern day society, women are pigeonholed into certain types of roles. Right, right. Motherhood, child caring, teaching, that sort of thing. I was going to say, sign me up. That cult sounds great. Right. Well, <laughs> scholarship, independence, virtues of joy and compassion. It, it is yeah. a cult. It is a cult of virgins, Leo. So, oh, uh, ooh, <laughs> damn. Did I speak too quickly? Do you, should I still sign you up on the form? I'm, I'm uh, halfway through filling out your info. We'll have to talk about eligibility off, <laughs> off mic. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Look, like most cults, I'm sure most people are lying anyway. <laughs> Listen, if I know anything about this world, no one is truthful on their cult application forms. <laughs> Constant lies. Yeah. Right. Two forms in this world that you always fudge. Your cult application form and your resume. That's just how the world works, folks. So that is Irulan's legacy. Yeah. And it's really cool to see that this character that at the start of this conversation I was calling inadequate. Right. And the encyclopedia was dunking on. Right. Ends up being the symbol for something that is legitimately really cool. Yeah. Being this symbol for women across Leto's empire and beyond. A symbol of female independence. Which also speaks to the content of her writings, right? Yeah. We only see some of her work, but for all of the body of work that we don't see, that, you know, they discover a hundred years after her passing, you got to think about all those virtues of that cult of Irulan the Virgin. Well, her writing must have been speaking on to those things, scholarship, independence. That is wonderful. The idea of her having this life, which, let's be clear, was not ideal. Right. <laughs> not not the best deal in the, in, the, in the bargain bin. But she still was clearly intellectually dedicating herself to developing some ideas in a way that then resonated with people. It's incredible. It's amazing. Love it. Yeah. And it would make a really good TV show, I think, to kind of come full circle with my pitch here and to wrap up. Why would this make a good TV show, Mr. HBO exec? Because I think Irulan's story is one of always being second best, right? Always being the punching bag in the room, always being the person supporting the more important person, always being looked down on, the afterthought in the room. Right. And despite that, she found a place for herself in the universe. She nurtured and cultivated a talent and passion that she had since childhood, writing. And it became the thing she was most well-known for. And I understand that watching someone get shit on by the emperor in a couple of episodes and then 40 minutes of them sitting in a room quietly writing into a notebook. <laughs> right. Not the most thrilling of cinematic adventures to watch on screen. I understand that. 
But I think the themes are important to cover here. This idea that despite the hardships, and again, she right. lives most of her life in palaces. Like, let's not overplay the fact that her life was hard. It wasn't. She lived in very big palaces around very powerful people and was rich most of her life. These aren't the giddy prime slave pits. These aren't the giddy prime slave pits, right. Right. But despite that, she was constantly looked down on and she overcame that. And I think that would be an, a really, really interesting theme to explore through her as a character. And of course, considering the fact that there is such a small entry in the encyclopedia about her, and we know very little about what she does outside of how she helps Paul and Alia and the kids, there's a lot of room in the parts of her life that we don't know about to take some liberties with her role, right? To take some liberties with her story. And it would be cool for a potential TV show to explore maybe the role she had in Shaddam's court before she married Paul and adjusted to the Atreides court. Right. Maybe she did some really badass covert stuff to help the empire that we never knew about. Maybe her role was larger than we could have ever imagined and that ever played out on the pages of the book. I would be perfectly fine with even adjusting some of her characterization to give her a larger role in the universe and, and tell some side stories of what Irulan is up to while Paul is out <laughs> flying ornithopters blind and shit. <laughs> I think that's totally true. Also, keep in mind, Dune is a world of pen names and aliases. She could have an alias. Yeah. You're, you're mentioning her being active behind the scenes. There's a lot of possibility there. Totally. Just by the nature of Dune and what happens in Dune. So that's my pitch. That's Irulan. That's her life. That's her legacy. And that's the potential TV show. I'd love to watch about her. What about you, Leo? I'm so excited to get into your pick. <laughs> so my pick is Esmar Tuik. Okay. The representative of the smugglers who is invited to uh, to Duke Leto's dinner party. Uh, also, the, the dead body that Duke Leto finds. And it's like, <laughs> oh, no, this isn't a good thing. I think this guy was at my party a few days ago. Uh -oh. So dying on the floor of a main character is a certain badge of honor, I'm sure. But what I was thinking about is we meet his son, Stiban Tuik, which I think Stiban could have the most incredible story arc. And hear me out. Beyond the fact that Esmar Tuik is a spice smuggler, so already we're seeing a side of Dune that we glimpse with Gurney Halleck when he goes and joins the smugglers. Yeah. But really, the process of, like, flying under the radar, working under the 80 years of Harkonnen rule, hmm. I would love to see that. I like Esmar Tuik a lot. But him dying makes the story maybe not as compelling. So I think my pitch is actually Stiban Tuik. And this is why, okay? Keep in mind, his father, spice smuggler extraordinaire, keep in mind the smugglers know so much more than most of the universe. They are in on some secrets. So working under Harkonnen rule, working around their rules and avoiding their little strike forces and doing all of that, cutting into those profits, those sweet, sweet profits, would be really fun to watch. Fun to see the kind of intrigue and the dodging around patrols and stuff like that. Stiban's father was also, Esmar, was instrumental in the Atreides establishing their initial foothold in the business affairs of Arrakis, right? Like, he was at the dinner table. He's brought to the palace 
this is a guy who can play both parts of the role of smuggler, right? He's a businessman, but he's also a a rogue, a ne'er-do-well. Ne'er-do-well, yeah. A ne'er-do-well. How often do well? Ne'er. Uh, that's a Gary... Gary, Gary Goldman joke, yeah. Gary <laughs> Goldman. Oh my God, he's great. I love Gary Goldman. Oh, so funny. Anyway, yeah. He's a, he's a rough-and-tumble street dude, but he can also be at the table with the Duke of the Planet. So yeah. clearly a cool character. Now, after he is killed, Gurney spends two years with his son. Stabon hangs out with Gurney Halleck for like two years. And although that's basically the last we hear of Stabon Tuick, unfortunately, again, he's really a side character, we actually do meet a uh, descendant of the Tuicks in Heretics of Dune. Some of the specifics I've kind of forgotten, but the head priest who was replaced by a Tleilaxu face dancer is a descendant of the Tuicks. So clearly, Stabon, in addition to not dying on the pages of Dune, he clearly fucks, y'all. <laughs> he has descendants. Wow. Thousands of years later. He fucks. That's some longevity. So anyway, focusing in on my HBO pitch, this is what I picture. We would follow a young Stabon Tuick as he is raised by his father and as he's learning his father's ways, his father's trade, you know, he's in the like smoky underground rooms, seeing these business dealings, seeing the smugglers do their work, right? We see him learning of the Fremen, right? Learn what so much of the universe doesn't know. We get to see him later in the season, learn of his father's death at the hands of the Harkonnens, right? Maybe there's a really beautiful touching scene there where they talk about the inevitability of it, but the speech he gives Gurney Halleck where he says, oh, I'm going to get revenge, but I'm going to be patient and I'm going to do it in time. Yeah. Incredible stuff. And to see the moment that he goes through that grief and gets to that place of this is what I'm going to do, it would be incredible. And then just imagine him watching with potentially like a nihilistic satisfaction as Paul Mwadib Usul Atreides rises to power and fucking shits on the Harkonnens. Yeah. God, that must have been satisfying. And all of this, again, wraps, I think, fairly neatly into a show of secrets, of, of uh, smuggling, you know, politics, dodging political machines, all revolving around the Fremen, the, the avoiding the Harkonnens. And at the center of the schemes, we have Stiban and his father, Esmar. Yeah. And it would be so cool to explore those two years yeah. that Stabon and Gurney are up to Nair doing well <laughs> in the desert. Did Gurney teach him Balisset? Oh my gosh. I want to know. Like a falcon and winter soldier, but a Atreides and Arrakis smuggler. And that was terrible. Tuic. Yeah, Tuic. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I like that. The buddy, it's the buddy cop dynamic. Yeah. They're they're smuggling, they're plotting against the Harkonnens, and the show kind of writes itself. Like, the end goal, the season finale, is how they achieve revenge. Yeah. How they avenge the deaths of the men they loved. Ugh. And then he leaves all of the fanfare of the Atreidean, you know, celebration. Right. And he goes back to his little bedroom, and he's got a little hand drawing of his father, and he raises a final shot glass of spice liquor and goes, 
to you, Pops, and drinks it down. Credits directed by Dick Wolf. <laughs> Post-credit scene. He's just fucking out of his mind. He needs those ancestors 5,000 years later, folks. <laughs> He's like, now that Atreides have control of Arrakis, it's time to have a million children. <laughs> <laughs> My other dream. My other dream. <laughs> Listen, I'm sure he can get it. I'm sure he can get it. Yeah. But anyway, that's my pick. Again, we get a lot less. We have a lot less about him on the pages. And a lot of this is understanding the sort of mechanisms that would be at play in his story. And also part of why I picked it, the mechanisms that are at play in some of my favorite TV series and HBO series. You've got the action, the fighting whenever they're caught by Harkonnen patrols, or you have the intrigue the sexiness he's got to make those million kids come on there's got to be like 14 sex scenes it's going to be great yeah plus you get the philosophizing the poetry the incredible electric dialogue between him and gurney yeah are you kidding me amazing stuff amazing stuff i think it would be so good that'd be such a great show and those are our two picks (laughs) two amazing shows yeah i think so so let's wrap up let's finish this off with kind of the same questions we had with Danica 19. Abu. Yeah. For Irulan, for the Virgin Queen, who would you cast in the leading role of the adaptation? Hmm. I always dread this question (laughs) because I'm never good at like casting things. Yeah. People are really passionate about it and I just don't know that many actors. Yeah. So I can never be like, oh, this this person would be perfect for this hypothetical role. And the internet is is always just like pitchforks at the ready if you have a bad casting opinion. Yeah, it's risky. <laughs> but I did some casual like Redditing, Googling, and I looked at some of the picks that other folks on the internet had chosen for a potential Irulan casting because we still don't know who is going to play Irulan in the upcoming Dune film. But we know that she will likely be in the film because, again, she plays enough of a significant role in the first three books that it's almost required for her to be on screen. Right. Someone on Reddit said that Vanessa Kirby Hmm. would be a good fit for the role. Wait, I have to... And I did... Again, I was like, I don't know who the fuck Vanessa Kirby is. (laughs) Let me Google this person. Right. And I was shocked to see that it's almost exactly what I imagine when I read the books. That's almost exactly how I picture Irulan. Yeah. Tall, blonde. She has this sort of natural, regal look to her. Because remember, she grows up in royal households. She is literally the eldest daughter of the Padishah Emperor. She's going to have that look about her. She's going to have that air of royalty. And based off of the pictures I found of Vanessa Kirby and her role in some other shows and movies... I think she fits the bill. You know, I had to look her up, but absolutely, 100%, I agree. It really is classic Frank fashion. We don't get a ton of details about what people look like, but from the small details that are there, she's described as being, you know, beautiful. And and I think blonde, (laughs) that's such a good call. So what about you, Leo? Who would you want to play Esmar and or Stabon Tuik in your show? (laughs) Both of them. They look the same. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, good question. Again, I, I suffer the same. I I know so few actors. But thinking about this, I was trying to think of, like, who have I seen on screen who has that sort of 
clear command, control. He's got authority, but he's also got this sort of sexy, mysterious, yeah. plays the the ne'er-do-well well, <laughs> right? He's a good ne'er-do-well. And someone who came to mind is actually Pedro Pascal. Oh. I think Pedro Pascal. So Pedro Pascal is the... Uh, Mando. Yeah, the Mandalorian. And granted, Mandalorian as a role is fun for his kind of command of, of some on-screen timing, but doesn't give him a lot of room to flex as an actor. I think of him also as the Viper from... Game of Thrones. From Game of Thrones. Yeah. You know, competent, swashbuckling almost. And I think he would be a great Stabon Tuick. Yeah, I think that's a great pick. I think Pedro Pascal has that perfect balance of rugged and handsome. Mm. He, he's right in between that, like perfectly balanced as all things should be for this role. And I think that's exactly what Stabon Tuick needs to be. He's got, he's got to have some of that rugged handsomeness, but he's a smuggler out in the desert doing some hardcore desert smuggler shit. Right. <laughs> so I think Pedro Pascal would actually be a really great fit. Hashtag hot smuggler shit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what he does. It's a hot smuggler summer. I also, I think that like when you watch interviews with Pedro, he's such a nice guy and he's just like so relaxed. Yeah. He's got a charm to him, just kind of a goofy, silly charm. And I picture someone like Stabon Tuick needing to be able to like diffuse tensions in a negotiation. For sure. Someone who could like say, hey, we're all a little bit on edge. Let's all put our slip tips away. <laughs> Let's all sheathe our kinjals. It sounded gross the first one, but anyway, sheathe <laughs> our kinjals. <laughs> and we're going to, you know, he cracks a joke. The room chuckles, you know. Right, right. I'm, my money's on uh, Pedro. Yeah, that's a great pick. Okay, final question of the episode, Leo. Yeah. We've both made what I think are very strong cases to HBO to send us big, fat, <laughs> thick checks yeah. to produce incredible shows about these supporting characters. I don't even need to produce the show. Just send me the check. And the show doesn't <laughs> even have to... Honestly, the show doesn't need to be made either. Just a check would be fine, HBO. Just, just, just... a fake check, please. Yeah. <laughs> but, Leah, let's say HBO yeah. is uh, you know tightening up the budget this year. They only can greenlight one of our show pitches. Which one would be your pick? Okay. In the last six seconds, I've gone back and forth twice. <laughs> <laughs> I initially was thinking that my show would be my pick. Right. Because it has so much action and you could really play because there's a lot of freedom. There's very little like structure limiting what you do, which means get some talented writers and you've just got a knockout show, right, in the Dune universe. But... I'm also thinking about, it's 2021 at the time of recording this episode. I think we need more stories of strong, incredibly capable, and not inadequate, as the <laughs> fucking encyclopedia is so quick to throw out there. Uh, I think a strong woman, seeing Irulan in all of what she accomplishes, I think that would be really good. And I think that that would be frankly the show that would maybe make a bigger difference for people if that makes sense yeah that makes sense yeah so also because you know for people who don't know dune it's very easy to look at it and go all the main characters are guys again kind of you know it's it's all about paul and his son leto but 
there are so many strong women characters in Dune. Having dedicated standalone series in the Dune universe celebrating some of those strong women, I think would be really powerful. So yeah, I think at the end of the day, having thought about it, although I hope that the HBO executives keep my idea on the side for next year's budget, <laughs> I go with uh, Princess Irulan the Virgin, who is totally smart enough, girl. You've got this. Yeah. <laughs> You're not inadequate. Come on. What about you? That's a really great point. I would actually kind of go the other way. And, you know, I'm not doing this just to be nice and to talk up your show a little <laughs> bit, but I kind of totally am. <laughs> I really like this idea of exploring Stevan Tuick's journey of revenge, mm. his path to vengeance alongside Gurney Halleck. Yeah. I think that two-year time skip in the middle of the first book is a great place to introduce more Dune stories, particularly about Staban and Gurney and the smugglers and the Fremen and what they're up to. Yeah. Again, we talked about this with Danica, actually, the fact that we don't really see the Fremen side of things. We spend all of our time with the Atreides, with Paul, with Jessica, with the Baron. We rarely ever spend time inside the heads and inside the sieges of the Fremen people or the smugglers. Right. And it would be cool to get a show that explores more of that, the culture of life in the desert, the culture of a smuggler and what they're doing out there, the culture of spice mining and what it takes to build a life out of that dangerous profession. All of those things hinted at in the Dune novels, but never quite fully fleshed out or explored. I think with that two-year time gap, that is plenty of time to explore some untold stories from the perspective of Stabon Tuick and Gurney Halleck out in the desert. Give me that desert buddy cop comedy. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. We uh, we agree to disagree, and uh, <laughs> we both win. There we go. We both win. Look, HBO, we can't come to a consensus. You got to greenlight both of them. You have to. That's how it works. <laughs> you can't decide which one. Just make budget for both. Right. It's easy. Look, I'll bite the bullet. And not cast Pedro Pascal. We'll find a lookalike. <laughs> or let's cast Pedro Pascal as Irulan and do a... <laughs> <laughs> and double dip. Yeah. And then Vanessa Kirby can play uh, Stevan. <laughs> It'll be great. <laughs> the HBO executives are like, but that's the same amount of money. Wh what? <laughs> you did it. You did it, kid. <laughs> you made it confusing and still wrong. Uh, yikes. That summarizes Kamjabar quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well friends there is no real ending it's just the place where you stop the recording but this podcast is always one step beyond logic so help spread the word of muadib and leave us a review on apple podcasts and be sure to check out the other shows on the lore party podcast network on loreparty.com you can also follow us on twitter and instagram at lore underscore party Thank you so much for listening, and remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path. Someone who came to mind is actually Pedro Pascal. Oh! I think 
Pedro Pascal. So Pedro Pascal is the uh, Lando. Land Lando. Not yeah, Lando. Not Lando. Mando. 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 Lando is a Mando. different Star Wars. Lando. <laughs> There's a lot of Andos <laughs> in, in Star Wars. I'm learning right now. Uh, 